Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. You know how when you get pulled over for speeding and the nice police officer comes to the window and asks you if you know why he pulled you over and you lie and you say you don't, somehow thinking that maybe he doesn't know either and you'll be able to pull away laughing at the silly man? But then he says you were speeding and you say, says who? Who made this arbitrary rule? And then you're asked to step out of the vehicle? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. At least I hope you don't. You knew the rule. You broke the rule. Just apologize. Take the ticket and try to pull away smoothly with a foot that's quivering like jello in an earthquake. There are so many rules and laws and mandates out there, but says who? Why are we subjected to so many rules and laws? Nobody asked me about them. On today's episode, first, nothing's really matter. Anyone can see. Nothing's really matter. Nothing's really matter to me. And then rules were made to be broken. And don't forget, goal update number 18 after the bumper. So pull out your old quantum physics notes and BYOB, because I have one rule around here, and it's here we go. Now, it may surprise you to know that I don't know everything about everything that I talk about on this podcast. Then again, it may surprise you to hear me imply that I know anything at all about anything I talk about on this podcast. The reality is I don't care to be an expert in everything. I know that's impossible, but I do have a deep desire to be right. That's not coming from a point of arrogance or elitism. In fact, if it comes from anywhere, it comes from second grade and the fact that I'm an introvert. I don't want to be wrong because I don't want everyone to turn around in their desks and stare at me. That's when I turn red and start sweating. If you're an introvert... You understand this. So to combat that admittedly silly fear of man, I strive to be right. That said, what we're going to look at here, I literally have almost no idea what I'm talking about. But this is where I think I set myself apart from many other podcasts. Rather than throw out a topic or a news story and ad-lib some info or craft my rant, I do actually strive to learn and understand what I can before I ever type the first letter of my spiel. So before I start, I just have to say, we did it. Congratulations, everyone. We finally did it. We can now all sleep soundly tonight. We can throw those Bibles away. We can stop wasting time in prayer. Churches can close their doors. We can all mow the lawn or go shopping or watch cartoons or maybe just get a little extra sleep on Sunday morning. We finally eliminated God. Friedrich Nietzsche said in 1882 that God is dead, but until now we couldn't prove it. Side note, Nietzsche was an atheist, but his statement was not actually a celebratory one. It was more from a standpoint that the concept of a god has been destroyed. Now what fills the void that that leaves? We've already created life without a womb by by creating an artificial womb and pumping in all the chemicals that would be supplied, you know, in the womb. We've proven that we can create life with no eggs and no sperm by simply utilizing generic stem cells and forcing them to become eggs and and sperm and then fertilizing them. And despite the result being malformed mutations that didn't make it more than a few days, (laughs) oh, we did that too. We finally cracked the code of male and female. Oh, it's about time. Now knowing that it's all a falsehood. 
And the real indicator of male or femaleness isn't appearance or genitalia or chromosomes. It's feelings, and that's all. We know that a woman is only pregnant with a baby if she wants to give birth to that baby. It's all perception. It's Schrodinger's baby. Until you see it, it's both a baby and not a baby at the same time. If the mom doesn't feel like she wants it, well, it's a clump of cells. We also know that the Big Bang absolutely happened, as the scientists that say it did, say it did. So, I'm not sure what other proof you'd need there. We've solved the mystery of how we got here. Of course, it's slow processes over very long periods of time, better known as Darwinian evolution. And we know exactly how that worked and every step it took to get from rock slime to us, except for all of the missing links and missing and or indefensible points. But the question of where did everything come from in the first place? Well, that's haunted mankind forever. <laughs> no longer. Found on BGR.com, headline, Scientists Create Matter from Nothing in Groundbreaking Experiment. Mm-hmm. Take that, magical sky god. We clearly have it all figured out now. Why don't you just go take five or something? So this article and this experiment uh, that was run is way over my head. Uh, some of you may understand it fully. I, I don't know, but I'm not afraid to admit that I just simply don't. Therefore and thereof and heretofore, I'm not going to try to explain it in great detail, as I'll do a horrible job of it, guaranteed. But as the purpose of this podcast is to take a logical and Christian look at news and events, that's what I want to do is... All of these types of science-based proofs that God doesn't exist or that the biblical account of creation is nothing but a naive, evolved, apes, fanciful story about things he didn't understand are full of contradictions, inaccuracies, and half-truths, and oh, we can't let those stand, can we? The opening paragraph of this story pretty much sums up the claim of science, quote, We've probably all heard the phrase that you can't make something from nothing. But in reality, the physics of our universe isn't that cut and dry. In fact, scientists have spent decades trying to force matter from absolutely nothing. And now they've managed to prove that a theory first shared 70 years ago was correct. And we really can create matter out of absolutely nothing. Huh. Okay. Well, so the claim is that there was a theory that was uh, theorized 70 years ago that's been recently proven correct, that uh, we, and we'll define we in a bit, can really, honest engine, and I know that's probably racist, we can really create matter out of absolutely nothing. Well, that's quite the claim, wouldn't you agree? So, so how can we do this, not being David Blaine or David Copperfield or Dr. Strange? How can we create something matter out of absolutely nothing without magic. I mean, from a biblical standpoint, and we'll come back to this also, we know that God can do that, but, but up to now, he's kind of been it. Not even Satan or the demonic forces have the power of creation. So the article goes on to state correctly that the universe is made up of several laws of conservation. Think of the laws of conservation of momentum. Something wants to continue in the same direction at the same speed until acted on by a force. Or the conservation of energy, where energy can't be created or destroyed, it can only change state. This world is held in perfect equilibrium when looking at it from an ultimate godlike view. We, at ground level, see decay and destruction, and chaos, entropy, but in all of the chaos, no energy is created or destroyed, it's only changing state. 
Well, the same kind of laws of conservation apply to the conservation of mass. This simply states that in a closed system, which our universe has for all of history been considered, matter and ultimately the mass of the matter can't change. It must remain in equilibrium. Again, that doesn't mean that it can't change states. It doesn't mean that locally we can't do something that changes mass of something, but ultimately the matter and mass never change. As I said, this universe has, as far as I know, always been considered to be a closed system, meaning that if we were able to weigh all of the stuff in the universe, that would never change, no matter what we did, as there is nothing outside the universe for something to come in from or to be lost to. That's the essential starting point of the Big Bang, that everything in the universe was compressed to the point that it was nothing which is a stupid theory in itself, then nothing spun faster and faster, nothing got hotter and hotter, and then nothing exploded, which blew everything everywhere, and that's how we're all here, and all this stuff is here. Like I said, stupid theory. But even by their own theory, everything was accounted for. Of course, now, since the Big Bang Theory is, you know, kind of crumbling because of the stupidity of it, as of uh, fairly recent history, theories of, of other universes and parallel universes and multiverses and all other sorts of verses that are all connected through quantum something, something, black hole, something, wormhole, I don't know, have been created out of whole cloth in order to describe what we see without using God, because we know that multiverses are much more plausible than an all-powerful creator God, right? I think, right? We all know that. All that said, we live in a closed universe. That's the reality of it. Now, how do I know? Well, because God created in six days, then rested. Now, could he create more? Oh, yeah, sure. But from what we've been told, that hasn't happened. And although I do agree that we don't need to be told everything, I have to go on the information I know for sure, not speculation. So God created, then stopped creating. All that to say this, the article acknowledges that this universe is governed by these various laws of conservation, but that hasn't stopped these sorry, scientists from trying to create matter from nothing anyway. The theory from 70 years ago is credited to Julian Schwinger and is aptly called the Schwinger Effect. Now, he built on partial theories by Fritz Sauter in 1931 and Werner Heisenberg and Hans Heinrich Euler in 1936, at which point in 1951, Julian Schwinger completed the theory. The basic idea is that if there's a strong enough magnetic field or electrical field, the field would decay as an electron-positron pair is created spontaneously. Basically, the electrical energy is sacrificed, creating subatomic particles, which are technically matter. This specific experiment was conducted by researchers at the University of Manchester. That's over in merry old England. So according to the website Big Think, in January 2022, they, quote, were able to leverage an intricate and clever setup involving graphene, an incredibly strong material that consists of carbon atoms bound together in geometrically optimal states to achieve this property with relatively small, experimentally accessible magnetic field. In doing so, they also witnessed the Schwinger effect in action, producing the analog of electron-positron pairs in this quantum system. Okay, so there you have it. You know, quantum systems and electron-positron pairs and analogs and things like that. I can't remember. Was positron a good transformer or was he one of the bad ones? 
Let's back up just a tick. For centuries, philosophers and scientists have speculated about what the smallest building block is that makes up stuff. They then theorized, then they experimented, then they developed the capability to find these building blocks of life. We had cells and molecules and atoms, then protons, neutrons, and electrons. Each time science announces they found the smallest component and that they're looking for smaller, with the theory that eventually we'll reach a point that we find the thing that can't be divided anymore. So for no real reason other than I love these names, some of the other elements that have been found are fermions, quarks, leptons, and bosons. These are some that we know about. Then scientists start to speculate about what might exist, so they have hypothetical particles like gravitons, charginos, gluinos, gravitinos, higsinos, neutralino, photino, sleptons, snutrinos, squarks, winos, and zynos, also axions, axinos, Brannons, digamas or digimas, dilatons, dilatinos, dual gravitons, gravifotons, graviscalars, inflations, magnetic photons, majorons, majorana, fermions, saxions, X17 particles, X and Y bosons, and W and Z bosons. And they just keep going. Higgs doublets, Kaluza Klein towers, leptoquarks, mirror particles, magnetic monopoles, and prions. Now, aren't these great? I like leptoquarks myself. Now, there are more. We're going to stop here, though. So electrons and positrons are in the lepton family, or more accurately, the electron is a lepton. The positron, being an anti-electron, is an anti-lepton. The electron has a mass of 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, but that's metric, which nobody cares about. That equates to 2 times 10 to the minus 30 pounds. That's a zero point, and then 29 zeros after the decimal, then a 2 in pounds. Or to put it in other terms, you would need 31 octillion or 31 followed by 27 zeros of these little electrons to make an ounce. So basically, they're pretty light. The theory is that the positron is the same mass as an electron, but an opposite charge. So when they contact each other, they annihilate each other. So I'll take this for granted. I don't know if this is verified as true. I don't actually care. I'll just say that, uh, sure, this is a fact. Proving or disproving this is not the focus of this review or this podcast. Back to the article. Remember, we've now proven the Schwinger effect and created something from absolutely nothing. Keep that in mind. We've conjured up mass from nothing at all. So how did we do it? Well, we already mentioned it from the big think, but let's dig a little bit more. There's a few other things that we didn't quite explain enough yet. So they started with graphene, and I love how they explain this. Quote, Graphene is an odd material in a lot of ways, and one of those ways is that a sheet of it behaves effectively as a two-dimensional structure. By reducing the number of effective dimensions, many degrees of freedom present in three-dimensional materials are taken away, leaving for fewer options for the quantum particles inside, as well as reducing the set of quantum states available for them to occupy. So basically, they're saying that you can make a sheet of graphene that essentially has no thickness. Well, that's literally impossible. But the point is that a single layer is very, very thin, which means funky things can be done in the subatomic realm. 
They continue on with this description, quote, leveraging a graphene-based structure known as a super lattice, where multiple layers of materials create periodic structures, the authors of this study applied an electric field and induced a behavior where electrons from not just the highest partially occupied energy state flow as part of the material's conduction, but where electrons from lower, completely filled bands join the flow as well. Now, if you know what this means, you know. If you don't, it really doesn't matter. Just know that this action doesn't readily happen nature. The atoms are being forced into weird activity due to the graphene and electric fields. Finally, Big Think says, quote, once this occurs, a lot of exotic behaviors arise in this material, but one was seen for the first time ever, the Schwinger effect. Instead of producing electrons and positrons, it produced electrons and the condensed matter analog of positrons, holes where a missing electron in a lattice flows in the opposite direction to the electron flow. The only way to explain the observed currents were with this additional process of spontaneous production of electrons and holes. And the details of the process agreed with Schwinger's predictions from all the way back in 1951. Okay, now this is where I have no idea what they're talking about. And frankly, my dear, I don't give a dagnabbit. What they've proven is that single sheets of graphene do really weird things. So don't worry about that. Stack up multiple of those sheets. I don't know, I guess they all do weird things together. I really have no idea here. Use a very large electrical current to force the sheets to do something weird, and voila, you get something created from absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing except the electrical current that was generated by something. The graphene sheets arranged in a super lattice and a team of uh, research scientists to put this all together in a perfect vacuum, no less, and create the perfect conditions to make something from nothing. See, this, my friends, is what passes as science. Now, admittedly, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but it seems that intelligent beings using a generated electrical field across graphene sheets didn't create something from nothing. It rearranged atoms or something, I don't know, remember, not a clue over here. Creating something from absolutely something is what they actually did. To me, and remember, I'm an idiot, that's like getting a pot and a stove and some snow and melting the snow in the pot on the stove then saying, I created water from absolutely nothing. Hashtag science. Now, what I found funny is that the title of the research paper and the abstract itself never claimed to create matter out of nothing. I mean, you'd think they'd kind of lead with their miraculous powers, but, uh, but no. The paper is entitled, quote, Out of Equilibrium, Criticalities in Graphene Super Lattices. In other words, they used graphene and made it do something weird, something they didn't expect. It didn't actually create anything. Even further, the Wikipedia entry for the Schwinger effect, and remember, the Schwinger effect apparently postulates that you can create something from nothing. Well, the Wikipedia entry says this, quote, The Schwinger effect can be thought of as a vacuum decay in the presence of an electric field. Although the notion of vacuum decay suggests that something is created out of nothing, physical conservation laws are nevertheless obeyed. To understand this, note that electrons and positrons are each other's antiparticles with identical properties except opposite electric charge. 
Now, see, what this postulates is that nothing is created or destroyed. Energy and or particles just change state. Continuing on, quote, to conserve energy, the electric field loses energy when an electron-positron pair is created. Electric charge is conserved because an electron-positron pair is charged neutral. Linear and angular momentum are conserved because in each pair, the electron and positron are created with opposite velocities and spins. In fact, the electron and positron are expected to be created at at least close to rest and then subsequently accelerated away from each other by the electric field. So the difference in this experiment as compared to the, I guess, the purest Schwinger effect is that rather than create the positively charged antimatter positron, it created the positively charged antimatter analog of positrons called holes. Different, but kind of the same. And just because the little lonely electron isn't zapped by the positron, the sciencey websites are going crazy. But what are these holes? Well, I went to physics.stackexchange.com and read the answers to the question, positrons versus holes as positive charge carriers. I mean, good reading. And then my brain exploded. I'll link the question and the answers in the notes, but I'm not reading it here. You might be driving or holding something sharp. Bottom line, positrons are considered to be actual particles. Holes are considered to be quasi-particles, but nobody really knows what the holes are exactly, but they kind of appear to be particles that are broken down and split up, kind of fuzzed out. And the bottom line, the electron was not created by itself, which is what these articles are trying to claim, a creation of a particle with no antiparticle that would cancel it out, thus matter created. But that electron was created with something that balances it out. We just don't understand exactly what that is. And as I stated a few moments ago, it took intelligence, a carefully designed and controlled experiment, very strong electrical currents, and graphene. So although maybe this experiment was like, I don't know, super cool in a quantum nerd kind of way, it's not what these articles say. It's not creating something from nothing. It's simply forcing a change of state for a few particles, and that's all. So why do we care? Well, for the simple reason that what so-called science, and, you know, quotes around that, is seemingly constantly trying to prove is that there is no God. This isn't evolution like we generally think of it, but that's exactly what this is. One of the biggest questions out there right now, one of the gotcha questions young Earth creationists can hit evolutionists with is, where did all the stuff come from? Now, the typical answer is that it's just always been. So, no eternal God, but eternal stuff. The problem is, that's not a satisfying answer for anyone. Although we, humans, know that matter can't be destroyed, only changed, saying that matter is eternal is a step too far for us. The Big Bang Theory even postulates that the cycle of expansion, contraction, superheating, spinning, and exploding, causing expansion, etc., etc., happens every, I don't remember, 100 bazillion years or something. The number is unimportant. It's a huge number with no actual scientific proof behind it, only an unprovable hypothesis, but they can't explain where the first stuff came from. It's, uh, it's turtles all the way down. This is why the theories have now shifted to alien races doing something or multiverses or matter coming through some wormhole or something. But the question remains, where did that stuff come from? Now, there are two contrasting Latin phrases that come into play here. The first is ex nihilo nihil fit. This means out of nothing, nothing comes. Essentially, if you have nothing, you can't get anything. You can only get nothing. 
For you and I, this is true. If we have no gas in the car, we can't just manifest gas in the gas can or the gas tank. And this is the theory that matter is eternal. It had to have been eternal because stuff exists, so we had to have always had this stuff. That's basically what that's saying. The other Latin phrase is ex nihilo, which simply means out of nothing. This is the creation that God did in the Bible. God is eternal, as he's all-powerful, He's the all-powerful creator. He's a non-created being. Everything else was created by God out of nothing. I'll caveat that here for a second, simply because God created it. There are two Hebrew words that describe the creation in the Bible. In English, they're create and make and their derivatives. In Hebrew, they're the words bara and asa. Additionally, the phrase let there be is the Hebrew haya, so bara, asa, and haya. Now, there are theistic evolutionists, who are people that claim to be Christian but choose to believe science in millions of years of evolution rather than the Bible they profess to believe. They claim that uh, create, or bara, means out of nothing, while make, or asa, means to make from something else which is where they try to wedge evolution into the Bible. Put simply, based on usage and context, uh, they're completely wrong. These words are used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament, both of them meaning from nothing or from something, depending on the context. So claiming that God got the ball rolling by creating from nothing the heavens and the earth, then just let evolution take over, is a pitiable position to take. Now I say that because a God that is powerful enough to start things rolling but can't control them after all that is a pitiful excuse for a God and not one that's all powerful, only conditionally powerful. A God that gets things started and then chooses to sit by and watch death, destruction, pain, suffering, mutations, and disease take over, eventually grabbing two evolved apes, calling them human, then proclaiming that everything is very good with that kind of murderous history? Well, that's simply just an evil God. The God of the Bible is neither evil nor powerless. The Bible is quite clear that creation took place in 24-hour days, six of them. We've discussed this before, but the word day is the Hebrew word yom, which is bounded by both day and night, a number, the definite article the, and any of these would specify a 24-hour day. All of these together specifies a 24-hour day yamoron. I can't make it any more clear for you. But even that is too far down the process. We have to step back to Genesis 1 one that says that in the beginning, now this clearly identifies when time as we know it began, God, and this clearly implies that God was already existing both eternally before creation and literally no time before creation as time didn't exist yet. Either way you look at it, God already was at the birth of our universe and all of creation. Moving through the verse, created the heaven and the earth. Okay. Heaven, in this context, means our atmosphere and all of space. There are three heavens, our atmosphere, or sky, space throughout the universe, and the abode of God. I would have a hard time saying that God created his own dwelling place. It also can't mean our sky or our atmosphere necessarily, uh, first because then we'd have to say that God created space at some other point, and all we had was our planet with a sky, and that makes no sense at all. And we know that God will shortly create the firmament, splitting the waters above and below the firmament. The firmament being the sky. That's what's meant by the sky. That's where the birds are. 
So our atmosphere was created on day two. Since we know that God created space on day one, there couldn't have been matter prior, since where would you put it? Matter, stuff, couldn't have existed before time, and couldn't exist nowhere. Now after that, for the rest of the six days of creation, did God create ex nihilo, out of nothing? Well, I mean, maybe some things, right? Although we, we do know that God formed man from the dust of the ground and made Eve from a rib. We really don't know if God created other stuff ex nihilo or if when he created the heaven and the earth, he put all the matter to be used to create plants and animals, stars, planets, etc. in the universe, and he assembled it through the remaining days. Either way, doesn't really matter. Either way, matter and stuff, they could not have existed eternally. It could not have existed outside of God, and no matter how he did it, God created all matter and all of creation. He did it in the first six days, Max. We know that. And then as far as we know, he closed the system with the caveat that he can do anything he wants. If he wants to create additional stuff ex nihilo, yeah, that's totally up to him. But we, the creation, the created, cannot do that. Likewise, no created being can create something from nothing. We tend to give Satan and his demonic horde a large amount of credit, often attributing to Satan a kind of equality with God, but opposite. But whatever power and abilities angels or fallen angels have, they are created, and they are not gods. They cannot create anything. That said, I have no doubt that Satan is behind simple headlines like scientists create matter from nothing in groundbreaking experiment. This is what Satan promised Eve in the garden. You will know good and evil, not only an enlightened view, but knowledge of everything as good and evil literally encompasses all things. So as we become more and more wise, and I use that term loosely, we're working harder and harder to prove that we can do everything that's been claimed only God can do, that we can redefine what has been defined, that we can control what we have no control over, and by doing so we can prove that there is no God. We are the gods of our existence. But as we see over and over again in the areas where we pull back the curtain on our claims of achieving godhood, we at best lie and manipulate the truth. At worst, we destroy, mutilate, worship evil, and kill. We worship idols, and the idols are us. And we do not make good gods. We're cruel. We require absolute submission. We are never satiated. We mandate sacrifice, and we are powerless. I'm not against science. Don't get me wrong here. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Science started as a mission to discover the wonders of God's creation. Sadly, today, the sole purpose of many scientific fields is to relegate God to the inside of some churches, or preferably just destroy any notion of a God altogether. Unfortunately, we've seen time and time again that in a society, philosophy and now science lead the way in justifying the removal of God which then leads to relative moralism and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, which always ends in rampant evil mass destruction and eventual collapse. So although this topic may admittedly be way over my head, I understand that when a claim of godlike powers is made, I must be skeptical. I must keep God in his rightful place, and then I must strive to understand what exactly is being claimed so I can help others see the truth as well. Quote, when prohibition was introduced, I hoped that it would be widely supported by public opinion and the day would soon come when the evil effects of alcohol would be recognized. I have slowly and reluctantly come to believe that this has not been the result. Instead, drinking has generally increased, 
The speakeasy has replaced the saloon, a vast army of lawbreakers has appeared, many of our best citizens have openly ignored prohibition, respect for the law has been greatly lessened, and crime has increased to a level never seen before. That was written in 1932 by wealthy industrialist John D. Rockefeller Jr., Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 37 overall, part 19 in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Today we're looking at the 21st Amendment, the one amendment unique from all the others. Now, I don't think this one should be unique. I think it should be joined by a few more. We can talk about that at a later time. If you recall, the 18th Amendment, ratified by the states as law on January 16, 1919, made alcohol for consumption illegal across the country. The 18th Amendment was broken into three sections, but section 2 and 3 were nothing but procedural points. The actual law was contained in the first section, which stated, quote, After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof, for beverage purposes, is hereby prohibited. This was the result of a major push by the temperance movement, a movement that sought to legislate morality based on their view of the evils of drink. Like I've said before, I don't drink alcohol, never have, never had any desire, so prohibition wouldn't matter to me. As a Christian, although growing up in a church that was pretty strict about things like alcohol, dancing, music with a beat, you know, Satan's playpen, I've since updated my view on drinking alcohol to align with the Bible. Drink it if you want, there's no problem with it, but do not drink to the point of drunkenness. That's what's prohibited by God, that's when it transitions to a sin. That said, this country is not a theocracy. This country is not a Christian nation, despite its founding, and this country is made up of mostly unregenerate sinners who hold no allegiance to God or His Word. So, to try to mandate morality is a difficult job to do, and impossible when the majority opinion differs from biblical rules. So in 1919, the American population was generally, apparently, aligned with the idea of removing alcohol from society. And as our quote from Rockefeller stated, the intent was solid, trying to remove the problems that alcohol can create, like violence, criminality, slothfulness, poverty, etc. And although at first it likely did have that effect, a decade later, the effect was organized crime, rampant disregard of the law, dirty politicians and law enforcement, and weariness with a law that was clearly not just pointless, but having the opposite effect. As the election of 1932 ramped up, there were clearly two different platform stances with regard to prohibition between the Republicans and Democrats. Herbert Hoover, running for a second term as president as a Republican, was not interested in repealing prohibition, even though the majority of the delegates in the Republican National Convention were for repealing the 18th Amendment. So they reached a compromise and settled on a party platform plank that would amend a prohibition and allow the states to have more say as to how they would or wouldn't enforce prohibition, but still subjecting them to federal oversight and control with regard to their state-specific proposals. The candidate for the Democrats, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the former New York State Senator, former Assistant Secretary of the Navy, current Governor of New York, was fully for the repeal of Prohibition, which aligned with nearly every Democrat delegate at the Democratic National Convention. As a result, they adopted a plank that proposed repeal of the 18th Amendment state by state, while allowing states and various localities to remain dry if they so chose. 
1932 election was as lopsided as the 1928 election, but this time for the Democrats rather than the incumbent Republican, Hoover. FDR won 42 states and 472 electoral votes as compared to Hoover's 6 states and 59 electoral votes. Now, prohibition was a major topic in the platform, but the 1929 Wall Street stock market crash and resultant Great Depression was really the nail in Hoover's coffin, ushering in, you know, anyone else to try to fix this mess. That said, despite the party differences, there were apparently a number of Republican congressmen that wanted a little nip from time to time, and they agreed with the Dems that they'd work something out. The 1932 election not only ushered in a Democrat president that wanted a repeal of the 18th Amendment, it also saw 100 so-called dry congressmen lose their seats, ushering in a supermajority of wets in the House and three votes shy of a supermajority in the Senate. With some work, those three votes were found and committed, but that Congress wasn't seated yet and wouldn't be until March 4th, four months after the election. Seeing the writing on the wall, the lame duck Congress, both the House and the Senate, took up the idea of a repeal and tried to get it passed through the two houses. The initial attempts to get some amending of the 18th Amendment to pass failed. But by January of 1933, the original resolution submitted by Senator John J. Blaine, a Republican, was modified to specifically repeal the 18th Amendment. With some modifications, the Senate passed it and moved it to the House. House Majority Leader Henry Rainey, a Democrat, called the House into special session, and after a very truncated debate session, the House passed the resolution by more than the two-thirds needed, sending it to the states on February 20th, 1933, less than two weeks before the seating of the new Congress and President. The 21st Amendment is also broken up into three sections, and it says this, quote, Section 1. The 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Section 3. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by conventions in the several states, as provided in the Constitution, within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states by the Congress. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory, really. Section 1 repeals the 18th Amendment. Section 2 further clarifies that the 18th is repealed. However, if there are other laws, such as state laws that prohibited alcohol, those are still enforceable. Section 3 puts in what's become the standard seven-year time frame for ratification. Simple Simon, right? The only difference in this one is that in Section 3, it stated that this would be voted on for ratification by conventions in the states rather than the legislatures. Either method was allowed by Article 5 of the Constitution, but for some reason they chose conventions for ratification on this one. Not only is the 21st Amendment the only amendment specifically created to repeal an amendment, it's also the only one ratified by convention, at least to this point in our history. It took less than two months for the first state to ratify the amendment, Michigan, on April 10th. It took 288 days to get to 36 states ratifying the amendment, with Utah, Pennsylvania, and Ohio all ratifying it on December 5th of 1933. A day later, Maine ratified it on December 6th, and then on August 6th, 1934, Montana ratified it. 
South Carolina rejected it in their convention on December 4th, 1933. On November 7th, 1933, North Carolina voted in rejection of even forming a convention to consider the amendment. And Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and South Dakota didn't take any action at all. They weren't going to give this repeal of prohibition even the time of day. Per the allowances in Section 2, Mississippi remained a dry state at least by law, until August 1966, when 19 counties voted to legalize alcohol. Kansas prohibited public bars until 1987. Currently, 33 states have a process that allows townships, cities, and counties to decide if they want to be dry or not. The other 17 states generally limit the local laws to the strictness of the state laws. So, did the repealing of prohibition fix the problems that it created? No, not really. Did the 18th Amendment fix the problems with the evils of drink? No, not really. The concept of mandating morality is a very difficult one. The Mosaic and Levitical laws, all given by God, had a very strict moral code. There were 10 commandments and 613 laws that were given to the Israelites. They were very specific, very exacting, and covered all aspects of life, society, and worship. If you think about it, prior to these laws, as far as we know, the only other law given was uh, don't eat from that tree which we practically did, you know, just immediately. Between those points, the laws were likely man-made and likely were formed from the inherent knowledge of right and wrong that we have, but we know from the time of the judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So given the opportunity, eh, we revert back to moral relativism. We decide what's right for us, right now, and that might change later. That's likely what was going on in various societies prior to Moses being given the law, and also for non-Jewish societies. Now, mandating morality aside from a theocracy is an impossible task to undertake. The Levitical law is no longer in place, at least not for nearly the entire world, and not to the same extent or with the same penalties. Remember, about 5% of the Levitical laws, when broken, carried a death penalty. 5% sounds like a small number, but not when you consider that's around 30 laws. Probably the only true theocracy with morality mandates and Stiff penalties in existence today would be Muslim Sharia law. It's a law and rule from a point of religion, but we would typically view this as a harsh, unkind, unloving law. I've said many times before, man should never institute a theocracy. We can't do it well. We won't do it well. We don't need to govern by theocracy. It will only lead to evil unless done by a perfect ruler, that being Jesus. So, does that mean that we should just say anything goes? Let all men do what they feel is right. Oh, one of the libertarian catchphrases is that they're out to take over the world so they can leave you alone. Libertarians advocate for a kind of government that's uh, just this side of anarchy. Only enough law and enforcement to keep us from degenerating into chaos. But other than that, personal choices and personal responsibility. If you'd like to do all the drugs, you go ahead and do them. You be you, boo. But the government will not bail you out of your problems. And if you affect the life of another, you pay the penalties. Since we can't mandate morality effectively, should we go the opposite direction and mandate personal responsibility based on personal morality like the libertarians want us to do? I'd say no. That also seems like a bad idea. So Romans 13 says, quote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, admittedly, I struggle, and I know I'm not alone, with blindly following this passage, with the correct understanding, even, of this passage. I agree that there are no authorities but those instituted by God. As God is all-sovereign, there's no other option. Incurring God's judgment because I resist those authorities is not a comforting position to be in. But then the portion I struggle with, the rulers are a terror to bad conduct, not good. What if they aren't, though? And I know the time that Paul was writing this, I know what was going on with Christians at that time, but what happens when the rulers are literally a terror to those doing good things? What happens when you're persecuted for fighting the tranny death cult, the murder of children? Do we still follow those leaders? I know that we, Christians, also believe that we follow our leaders until they tell us to do something God said not to do, or tell us not to do something God told us to do. So how does that comport with this passage? And I don't know what to tell you. I haven't noodled that out yet. But as rulers, as a government, should we mandate morality? And I would say, sort of. Sharia law works, for better or for worse, because the style of governance is a theocratic dictatorship or autocracy. That's literally the only way you could even attempt to clamp down and mandate morality. And then the question arises, whose morality and by what standard? In the Western culture, the democratic-based systems, and for these purposes we'll call America a democracy, even though it is not one, regardless of what the Marx, the uh, Democrats want to claim, so the democratic systems can only mandate morality in line with what the people collectively agree on, and can only mandate as far as the people are willing to tolerate. So regarding alcohol, collectively, we will not agree that you can take alcohol away. We nearly all agree that driving drunk is a criminal offense. This is along the libertarian principle. Do what you want as long as you don't encroach on someone else's liberties or freedoms. A drunk driver may survive for quite some time, but eventually he'll encroach on someone else's rights, likely by injuring or killing them, or minimally by destroying someone's property. We're seeing the same kind of battle in the world of drugs, with the legalization of first medical marijuana and now recreational weed. I would argue that because of encroaching sin, hardening of our hearts, denying our creator, the perversity, the debauchery, the evil that will be accepted by society will increase over time, likely at an exponential rate, until Jesus comes back. Murdering babies, mutilating children, turning a blind eye to sex slavery, legalizing drugs, overlooking theft and vandalism, justifying all sorts of criminal activity, racial divisions, normalizing sexual perversions, all of these are things that our society has either accepted or is in the process of accepting. Some are being fought against politically, some are not. But from a purely human standpoint, our morality has slid down that slippery slope, and just trying to mandate morality back into the system will fail. So, unless the heart of the nation, the spiritual heart, which is made up of each person individually, changes, we can't mandate morality. If the heart of the people are brought back to Christ, morality wouldn't have to be mandated. The laws would only be put on the books for those that are not regenerate and saved, 
simply stating that this is how we do things, kind of how it used to be. Bottom line, what we saw with the attempt at prohibition was a society that generally saw alcohol as evil and generally thought they could force a moral change through legislation, and it failed. It took over a decade to be repealed, but it failed nearly right away and just continued to fail harder and harder as time went on with the pushback against the law being worse than if they had just left it alone. And this is what we're seeing and will continue to see in our society. Many of our laws are based on what our morals used to be. Those laws are going to be repealed, replaced, or ignored as society progresses unless our society has another great revival. And that's possible. Our nation may experience a third great revival or a fourth or a fifth. I have no idea what God's plan for the United States is in the future. So can we legislate morality? Well, I mean, sure, we can try. And as long as society is on board, it'll work. As society changes, the fight will get harder to keep those laws enforced. So the question is, after all of this, should we even try to legislate morality? And to some extent, yes, we should. The alternative is chaos. So there must be laws on the books, laws that come back to and are based on the second great commandment of love your neighbor. But we must understand that laws alone will do nothing. If the heart of the society is inclined more and more toward evil, the laws will fail. So we must go after the hearts of individuals, show them the truth, show them Christ. Only that will bring any sort of morality back to society. And with that, we'll bring this episode of The American Genesis to a close. Hopefully, if nothing else, this gives you something to think about with regard to laws, legislation, and why there is such division between the Democrats and Republicans, and why that divide is becoming more and more impossible to bridge. So, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Goal update number 18. Please ensure your seatbelt is low and tight across your hips. Pull the lap bar down securely, ensuring it clicks. Keep all arms, legs, tentacli, and other appendages safely within the pod. Excuses begin in... 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. It wasn't my fault. The batteries in the scale were old and evil. I was holding a one-pound Snickers bar in each hand when I weighed myself. I haven't pooped in a week. I think we had a very localized gravitational event. Y'all did see the solar flare, right? Uh, yeah, so you may have guessed. Uh, this week's update starts with an epic fail. As the kid says these days, I'll be taking the L on this one. So in the last week, I gained 1.4 pounds, but... There might be a few reasons for this beyond the obvious, and I'm being serious. There really might be. So last week went poorly in terms of exercise, but to try to even things out, it also went poorly in terms of calories eaten. Let's just say that mistakes were made. So I had a few things that kind of converged on me last week. I had an extra busy week of stuff, and I didn't get a workout in from Tuesday through Friday, which is fairly unusual. As a matter of fact, I think that's the first time that's happened since... Uh, I guess I've started the weight loss journey this year. Then Saturday was a very abbreviated workout. Sunday and Monday were back to normal. At the same time, a few days I tried something. 
I should never try things. This never goes well. I tried eating most of the little snacky things that I typically eat in the evening after working out. I pulled them forward and ate them shortly after dinner with the good intention of moving most eating into a narrower window during the day. You know, only a few little things after the workout rather than the little pile that I normally eat. It turns out my willpower only goes so far. I mean, who knew? Uh, and I ended up eating more snacks, not just not just earlier snacks, just uh, just more snacks. The kid and I also went to the mall on Thursday, so you know, Chick Fil A because I'm a Christian. Friday, I just made a pig of myself, I'll be honest. And then Saturday, the kid and I went and watched the Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, definitely would recommend, which of course necessitates popcorn. And I will never apologize for that. But then Junior wanted to stop at the fairly newly opened Crumble Cookie Place. Have you tried that place? Mmm. That's all I can say. Just, just, mmm. So we stood in line for about 40 minutes, bought a six-pack of cookies, and to both of our credit, neither of us ate all of our cookies in that one day. Now, it really wasn't due to our strength of character or anything like that. It was due to the fact that I'm fairly certain we would have died. Then Sunday and Monday were good days. Overall, last week, I averaged about 340 calories over my goal per day, but that really only brings me to 1,915 calories per day. So gaining 1.4 pounds based on that makes absolutely no sense since 3,500 calories is a pound. and I didn't do that. But last week, I lost 2.6 pounds, you know, the last weigh-in, and, and that was excessive. And it's possible, however, the day after, on Wednesday, I was up a pound already, and I think... We'll have to see how this plays out next time to see if I might be right. But I think that last week's weigh-in was maybe out of line on that Tuesday. As in, that's what I weighed at that exact point in time, but it really wasn't my weight. So rather than being 181.8, I was most likely the Wednesday weight of 182.8, which means that this week I would have gained 0.4 pounds from last week, which looking at calories, I mean, that at least makes more reasonable sense. Like I said, time will tell how all this falls. One thing I've told others, and I forced myself to do last week, was log in my shame on my fitness pal, my calorie tracker of choice. The temptation when you track your calories, at least for me, and I've talked to others and they seem to deal with the same thing, is to just ignore those days where you totally blow it with this false hope that much like a six-month-old, if I can't see it, it's not really there. But it is. Those calories are there. So it's cathartic to just be honest with yourself, log in the failure, let the guilt wash over you, try not to eat those feelings as well, and then move on. So looking at what this did, this week's gain put me at 4.2 pounds ahead of my goal, 31.2 pounds lost overall with a weight of 183.2 pounds. It's clear that this week needs to be a better week, and quite obviously, this needs to be a solid red because, I mean, come on. Moving on, pages went well, really well. As I'm reading a book that I'll likely tell you about next week, it's just a page turner. Or as one reviewer calls this, this writer's books, the authors, all the authors' books, they're unput downable. The Deeper Thinking book is also a very good book, but it's slower, right? Good progress being made on both of them, though. So I read 315 pages last week total, 15 in The Deep Thinker, 265 in The Page Turner. 
That puts my total pages at 3,413 against a goal of 3,600 for the year, bringing my rate to 227.5% of my goal pace. As the page turner is book one in a three book series, I think I'll be plowing through some pages fairly quickly over the next few weeks to months. So this one is obviously staying a solid green. Now, Bible reading for the first time in over three and a half months took a little negative hit. I was short one day, so only read six days in the Daily Bible against the goal of seven. So the percentage dropped a couple percent, still sitting at 157.6% compared to my goal pace. We're still good there. And I still see no problem with finishing this up by the end of June, then moving to phase two, venturing into an ungold region. Why did this one slip? Well, like I've said before, I read right around lunchtime at work. That's become kind of my modus operandi, but last week for some reason was just kind of hectic and there were a couple days I just couldn't do it because stuff was going on. That normally doesn't happen, clearly, but again, I'm going to blame the fat stars that aligned and I think they just kind of threw everything off balance, you know, the force and whatnot. So for now, I'll put this as a light green. Finally, devotions. Nothing new to report there, except The firstborn of all creatures in Egypt were just killed, and Moses and the Israelites were just commanded to take all their junk and get out. I think I mentioned last week that the devotions I'm doing are working through the book of Exodus right now. So that creeps up ever so slightly to 126.6% of my gold pace, staying a solid green. And that's it. It's not all rainbows and happiness in Goldville this time, but this happens sometimes. You just dust yourself off, let the horse climb back on, and get up. Wait. No. Ah, you know what I mean. Okay, bye.